Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and thanks for joining us for this episode of New Books in Philosophy, which is part of the New Books Network. I'm Robert Talese. I'm professor of philosophy at Vanderbilt University. I host the program along with Carrie Figder, Alexis McLeod, and Sarah Tyson. My guest today is David Estland. David is a Lombardo family professor of humanities and philosophy at Brown University. He works primarily in political philosophy, and I suppose many listeners will know his influential work in democratic theory. David's new book is focused on a series of interlocking questions concerning the enterprise of political philosophy itself. This concern is reflected in the book's title, Utopophobia, On the Limits, If Any, of Political Philosophy. The book has just been published with Princeton University Press. Now, an intuitive line of thought would have it that our normative theorizing about the political order, perhaps normative theorizing in general, ought to be, in a certain sense, realistic. That is, it's tempting to hold that any proposed principle of social justice would be defective if it demands too much of people, given their proclivities. A stronger version of that view, one that many philosophers find attractive, has it that there's something about the concept of justice itself that makes it the kind of thing that must be down to earth and within our reach. Now, a range of conceptual and methodological issues quickly emerge once we begin wondering whether this kind of deference to the realistic and the feasible is warranted. As some listeners will no doubt recognize, this series of disputes currently is characterized in the ideal-non-ideal theory debate that is currently still pretty active in political philosophy. In the book Utopophobia, David Esland explores the question of whether a proposed principle of justice is defective strictly in virtue of its being unrealistic. This is an intricately argued and wholly fascinating work of philosophy, so there's a lot to talk about. But let's begin, as we usually do, with our guest. Hello, David. Hi, Bob. How are you today? I'm good. That's good to hear. Um, Well, uh, you've written this fabulous book, but why don't you start us off by telling us a little bit about yourself? Okay, thanks about the book, um, and thanks for doing this. Thanks for having me. Sure. Um, a little bit about myself. I, I grew up in Wisconsin. In high school, I was mostly interested in the arts, um, visual arts and music, uh, and I guess that has um, some sequel in my life now. I'm um, a serious hobbyist in photography, and in fact, as you might know, the book cover is a photograph of mine. Right. Um, and in college, I was also politically active. I got involved in the anti-draft registration movement and with the uh, attempt of TAs to unionize, that sort of thing. And I think that was happening just at the time when I was realizing I was probably going to go on into philosophy. And I was interested in lots of different kinds of philosophy, but that may have been what tipped me into wanting to do political philosophy. Um, then I taught at UC Irvine as my first job before coming to Brown, which was uh, in 1991. Uh, my first book, Democratic Authority, 
um, uh, just as a way of leading into this current book, um, that developed a theory of democratic authority called an epistemic account, where it's about the incorporating something about democracy having a tendency to get right answers. And as I was finishing it, I realized it it really depended on a lot of what's called civic virtue, and you know, citizens behaving <laughs> really quite well, educating themselves, arguing honestly, and and uh, being pretty reasonable and so on. And I realized there was going to be this line of criticism out there. As I thought of it, I heard it being said to me, uh, you and I both know people are never going to do yeah. that. And without conceding that we should be sure they never will, I thought I wanted to give myself a little wiggle room because my response felt like what I wanted to say is I never said they would. Uh, so that's what got me going on this topic, that this is a n- normative project, the democracy book, and lots of political philosophy is a normative project. So it's puzzling why so much political philosophy holds it against a political theory, a normative political theory, say a theory of justice, that in some way it's unrealistic. We don't do that about moral principles. You know, we know nobody's going to live up to the moral principles completely. That doesn't count against the moral principles. Why is that in political philosophy? Rather than try to explain how that happened exactly, I just don't think it's correct. And so I wanted to explore the idea that it's not correct and that there's no reason to think that properly understood uh, normative political philosophy is constrained by uh, what people are likely to do. So, so that brings us up to date. Great, 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 great. Um, so, and you know, the 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 title, the the the, the main title of the book, um, uh, Utopophobia, um, is that you know is is one of the final one of the ending chapters in Democratic Authority is right. it has that title. Is that right? That's right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so the, the the term has been with us for some time. Um, so um, let's turn to the book, and and I want to start with with the big picture, which is uh, you know you've just given us a nice segue into. Um, and if if you don't mind, even the cover image on the book, which is a photograph you took, which I, I found really evocative, and um, as I was making my way through the book, um, uh, the 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 image on the cover of the book struck me as um uh even more appropriate uh that is when i saw the before, you know before, when i saw i had read part read the book before it came out and i saw the the cover and i before i even knew it was your photograph i, I thought that i understood what the image was conveying a sort of misty view of a road um so um but let me read the 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 james baldwin quote that appears at the very start of the book um and maybe we can get a help our listeners get a sense of the sort of big picture issues um, from talking about the quote and the, 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 the image. Um, so here's Baldwin. Um, the sea rises, the light fails, lovers cling to each other, and children cling to us. The moment we cease to hold each other, the moment we break faith with one another, the sea engulfs us and the light goes out. Um, so although utopophobia is a very tightly focused book, uh, the topic is really, um, uncommonly broad, especially for contemporary political philosophy. Um, your topic really is the endeavor of political philosophy as a project. Um, so maybe some words just to situate the sort of bigness of the topic. Yeah. Um, sure. Let me go through those sort of three things in order. Let me say just a bit about the cover. Um, I appreciate hearing your, what you said about it. A little bit about the Baldwin quote, and then about, as you say, addressing the endeavor of political philosophy. 
Now, I wouldn't read too much into the symbolism or whatever the cover, but you're exactly right. It's called Winding Road. And I think what it connotes for me, and different people might see it in different ways, is that for me, it's evocative of looking farther down the road than we're likely to travel, right? It's not just a road. It's like there's a kind of a haze between us on the road. The road, road yeah. looks like it might not even be real. And then way down at the end, you can't even see where it goes anymore. <laughs> and, and, I, and that's sort of how I see uh, the limits or not of political philosophy, that there's nothing wrong with, in a certain sense, looking way down the road, that is, to things that there may be things to learn about, even though we might not have any reason to expect we'll get there. And so that you know, kind of obviously relates to the topic of the book. The Baldwin quote, I think, I, you know, I have a number of epigraphs through the book, and they're, they're doing different things. Sometimes I'm endorsing the person's view. Sometimes it's clearly contrary to what I have, and I don't, usually, don't always say uh, why it's there. I do say a little bit about the Baldwin quote. I think what I'll just say now to keep it brief is I think what I thought sets up the book nicely is that in that very compact, I, I find remarkably moving couple of sentences, it, it makes really vivid how the most um, realistic facts, the acknowledgement of the most realistic facts can coexist with the most moving, almost lurid kind of idealism about loving each other, holding, not breaking the faith. That's the idealism. The realism is the, the sea is maybe about to engulf us. There it is. The clouds are gathering. So it's completely wide-eyed. All the facts are present. It just might not work out, but here's what it would take to work out. And then it's this very idealistic um, thing about, um, you know, love and community. So, so I feel like it, that combination of those things sets up the book. Here's why I think that combination is important. In the so-called ideal theory, non-ideal theory debate, um, it's sometimes thought that some people favor doing ideal theory and some people favor doing non-ideal theory. Well, probably talk a little more about what those might mean. But in any case, it's not really that kind of debate. Right. There's really one side that says um, non-ideal theory only. Right. Critics of ideal theory. The other side, nobody says ideal theory only. They say both. So maybe this is tendentious, but as it were, my side in the debate is the inclusive one. <laughs> that is, I, you know, ideal people who work in ideal theory believe, contrary to some other you know, thoughtful critics, that highly idealistic normative theorizing is a legitimate, even important part of, of political philosophy. And I think it's nice to see in someone like Baldwin, so politically engaged and so reflective, um, totally acknowledging how important it is to him to be thinking about the most far out limits of, of true justice. And I, I won't quote it now, but there's another little passage in the preface. In Baldwin, again, and from a completely different source where he basically says what I just said explicitly. So I found that intriguing. I thought readers might as well. Right. Uh, well, yeah, please go ahead. I was just going to say, yeah, it, it, it just wanted to um, sort of uh, agree that the, the Baldwin quote is the one I just read, you know, really is moving. <laughs> yeah. Glad, glad you think so. Yeah. Um, yeah. So uh, the last thing you mentioned about, and I'm glad you put it this way is it, it is true that, you know, in analytical philosophy, it can seem like we're always dealing with, you know, clause 201B2 of some theory. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And, and, I, and you, if you just flip through the book, you'll see that I do try to get really analytically precise in many ways. But you're right, I am stepping back. And the whole ideal theory, non-ideal theory 
um, issue or literature, let's say, is doing that. It's stepping back to a methodological level. And it's asking about what you say is the endeavor of political philosophy. One thing I, I like about emphasizing that is, it, since it's methodological, it might seem like, well, this is only going to be interest in, of interest to people who will do political philosophy because it's about how to do it. But it's not really true. This is, a, I find when people ask me, you know, what I'm working on, it's a familiar issue, this question about whether thinking about justice should be realistic or whether it's a problem with it if it's utopian. That actually is in the culture. People are familiar with that kind of critique of political thinking. Um, so I'm trying, to, I'm trying to engage in that big way. As you said, it's engaging with how to do political philosophy, and as you put it, the endeavor of political philosophy. And what I would say is what I'm really trying to emphasize is the endeavors of political philosophy. If we really had to say that it really is only one of these endeavors or another, maybe I would opt for the you know urgent, pressing, practical questions. Right. But throughout the book, I argue there's just no reason to think that it's that only. So it's you might say it's a kind of um, it's related to what I said about it's being inclusive. It's sort of maybe a pluralistic conception of what is a legitimate topic for political philosophy. And by legitimate, I mean there's any police. I mean uh, centrally interesting, important, and you know illuminating for other issues in philosophy and so on. Yeah. Right. Right. And, you know, it, I guess it's um, we'll, we'll get to this a little bit later in the interview, because part of the ultimate argument, which um, shows up in the latter chapters of the book, will be that um, there's something um, about uh, the pursuit of, you know, the intellectual pursuit of thinking through uh, highly idealized uh, political ideals or a political conception of justice. Um, there's something about that project that um, uh, could very well, and we've probably got good reason to think it will, have, um, uh, have some practical significance, even if not a practical payoff. Um, and uh, that significance is not merely like we, we've got a, a target to approximate. Even if you see the, the error of that thought, uh, that the, the project of political actors should be to, um, in a piecemeal way, you know, sort of inch closer and closer to some, somebody's ideal, um, even if you see that that's a, an error, um, there still could be um, uh, something practically important uh, about um, gaining, gaining knowledge of a non-practical sort. Right. <laughs> well, that's right. That's right. Some people, um, it, it's tempting to, to simply think that if your ideal theory concludes with principles that we can see we're never going to meet and probably shouldn't even set out for, that that shows it doesn't have the kind of practical importance right. that people want. But as you point out, and there's a number of ways in which I argue this in the book, but I hasten to add this is not my central issue right. in the book. But, but there are kinds of practical significance it could have of other kinds other than try to set out for that particular goal. I'll just mention one that will be familiar, um, again, to, to everyone. We all know that thinking beyond the horizons of what we expect to be able to achieve is absolutely crucial in light of our appropriate humility about whether we're right about what the limits are, about what we can achieve. Well, we tell kids to dream and we don't mean, you know, stop dreaming at the point where you think this is unlikely. We don't mean that. Right. Right. And I think that's, that's the way I want to think about um, political philosophy too. In, in a way, um, um, Jerry Gauss, who's critical of this way of um, philosophizing and has a terrific book called The Tyranny of the Ideal, he calls it a kind of this kind of view, ideal theory as dreaming. And he's not really denigrating it, but he, you know, he thinks that takes it quite far outside practical concerns. 
But I think we all know that dreaming has turned out time and time again in history to show us that it turns out we were capable of much greater moral progress than anybody would have thought just shortly before it happened, like uh, the removal of slavery or the election of a black president and so on. So my central aim is not to ask, is it practically important to understand ideal theory? I'm mainly arguing that um, what justice requires could be unrealistic and that wouldn't count against the theory. But for what it's worth, it could have various kinds of practical significance. And I think we'll probably come uh, across a few others as we uh, continue to talk. Sure. Good. So let's, um, one more, let me ask one more sort of preliminary question. We've been touching on, uh, on this in, 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 as we've just been talking, but it might, again, I think be helpful as a way of situating the project of the book, uh, at least for some listeners. Um, cause I suspect that, um, uh, some people who are listening to the program are familiar, at least in, in some way familiar with what's called, uh, the ideal non-ideal theory debate in political philosophy, maybe in normative philosophy in general. Um, and, um, you know, uh, uh, like very fundamental, many very fundamental debates over methods and aspirations and ways of proceeding um, in philosophy, um, this debate sort of has reverberations uh, in all kinds of places and also sometimes um, uh, uh, sort of reaches people in a way in which um, the actual uh, initial concerns and the initiating concerns are not always legible, but, mm -hmm. you know, so um, uh, I sometimes hear people talking about being non-ideal theorists about something in ways that don't strike me as connected to um, yeah. where, where that uh, originates. So um, it might be helpful. Let's, if we can just sort of, maybe if you could just give sort of some of the background, um, there's a variety of contemporary views that hold some version of the thought that the truth about what justice requires is necessarily conditioned by facts about what humans can do or are likely to do. Um, and on that kind of view, justice, a view of justice or a conception of justice or principles of justice are defeated. Yeah. Uh, simply in virtue of somebody's being able to show that they won't be that they won't be realized or that they'll never be realized. Um, now, one way to understand sort of the central thread of the book is simply to resist that, right? Mm -hmm. um, it's right. simply kind of a, uh, a a rebuffing maneuver, right? You're not vindicating anything, at least in the first instance. You're kind of rebuffing the more obvious ways of um, uh, of stopping the conversation uh, uh, or, or sort of defeating more idealistic conceptions. So maybe can you just give us sort of like a little like territory, sort yeah. of a tour of the territory? Yeah, that's that's good, and you're exactly right. That the kind of project or thesis that I pursue is just one thing that might be meant by ideal theory, and you describe right. it quite well. And we'll talk more about it. It's it's against this kind of what we might call non non ideal theory move. I'll come back and situate it in the literature in a second. It's if somebody says, as I was talking about the democracy thing, that theory of say justice can't be correct because you and I both know people will never do that. Um. So it's, that's it. So we could say that's a kind of non-ideal theory insistence. And my claiming it's not a legitimate complaint is a kind of ideal theory point. And that's about the extent uh, to which I want to associate my particular view with the ideal theory, non-ideal theory literature, because so people who are familiar with that literature know that there's been uh, 
some, some work that came along after that literature got going, pointing out that people were talking about a number of different things by those terms. It's still a useful term because we all know there's this family of debates uh, about um, things that might be called ideal and non-ideal theory. And I'm certainly in there somewhere. Um, so some things that are meant by idealization are about simplification and other things are about assuming full compliance or moral perfection. And I engage um, with some of those, but I try to be very clear about what I mean and not just say I'm doing the ideal theory thing. I should say too that the way I came on it was before I was aware of the ideal theory, non-ideal theory literature. It was finishing the democracy book, as I say, and that literature hadn't really gotten going yet. Um, and I was lucky when I got on this issue and really interested and started looking around who'd written, it was just getting going. There was, I believe, a special issue of, might've been social theory and practice, yeah. this whole thing. And a few years before that, even as people will know who work in this literature, there was an important influential article by Charles Mills called Ideal Theory as Ideology, critical in a certain way of ideal theory. So that was just getting going. So how did I get on these issues? Not yet aware of that literature. I was aware of this um, kind of, let's say, debate or critique right through the tradition. Right. So we have many theorists who want to associate themselves more with Machiavelli as if he stands for a certain kind of non-ideal theorizing, which they often mean not overly moralized, or with Rousseau, who had the famous pledge to take, as he said, quote, men as they are and laws as they might be, and he meant to be implicitly rebuffing some previous theorists who have not respected that. So I think this is a central strand right through political philosophy. And I'm, I was sort of surprised to see, I thought I had, you know, serious arguments against that view that's almost been taken for granted, the taking men as they are thing. Uh, so that's how I came onto it. And I still hope that the way I'm engaging it is of interest uh, in looking at theorists from, you know, Plato all the way uh, to now. Right. Fantastic. Um, so uh, maybe then we could, um, uh, well, let's move to the, the, the actual meat of the book, right? Um, so if we think of the argument, um, as uh, I, I laid it out a moment ago and you endorsed, that, you know, one sort of central thread of the argument is this sort of rebuffing argument. It's the, you know, there are a certain, there's a certain set of arguments that are often taken both in the tradition of political philosophy and in uh, certain regions of contemporary political philosophy, there are certain kinds of argumentative moves that are taken to be on their face decisive against idealistic or theorizing uh, in, in, in highly idealized ways. Um, and your arguments, at least in the first parts of the book, are really just aimed at rebuffing that. But it's not so obvious that this is a clear win for the more realistic, down-to-earth uh, 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 kind of uh, uh, theorist of justice. That is somebody who insists that uh, uh, the thought that people will never do it is a, uh, is a knockdown uh, refutation of, uh, of a proposal. Um, so one kind of view of this sort is uh, the, the, the kind um, that you were just sort of um, – uh, uh, associating with Machiavelli and some contemporary people who've been influenced by him, which sometimes is called realism uh, uh, in the book and uh, elsewhere in the literature. It's, I think it's more accurately characterized as um, anti-moralism, which is the idea that our political concepts are somehow distorted when they're, uh, as this view would have it, confused for uh, 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 concepts that have moral content. 
Um, you find the, 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 that kind of view unconvincing and the considerations that are often given in support of it uh, unmoving. Can you tell us a little bit about your, as you call it in the book, again, to emphasize the rebuffing aspect rather than the refuting, if we can draw that quick distinction. Yeah. Um, the, it, it, your view is anti-anti-moralism. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. I did the double anti to say, look, I'm not sure I want to say what the moral is and defend moralism. But right. there's a very well-established view out there throughout the tradition, and now it's become um, more prominent. Um, that, um, And roughly there's a disciplinary divide. I'm sure you'll recognize this too. Very rough and not easy to define between so-called political theory and political philosophy. Yeah. They overlap a lot, but basically political theorists are those usually trained in and teaching in poli-sci departments, but they read many of the same authors and political philosophies and philosophy departments. And there is some truth to the claim that political philosophers, uh, defined in that way, tend to think of political philosophy as a species, you know, a, a subset, let's say, of moral philosophy. Right. This is anathema to many or most political theorists, and I, I have always found that puzzling. I've been lucky at Brown for many years. We've had a a workshop that brings political theorists and political philosophies together just for decades uh, here. And so I've gotten to kind of interrogate that view for many years. I do suspect actually this whole book project is owed to those conversations. <laughs> One to think back about, you know, you know, you know how it kind of builds up and it's like, now I really have to give my answer. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, let me just add one quick thing. You know, it does seem that Machiavelli is a kind of um, a hinge on which this yeah. distinction between the political theorists and the political philosophers, like how seriously do you take Machiavelli yeah, exactly. is one way of sort of sorting the, the political yeah. science, political theorists from the political philosophy. Right. You know, there's yeah. This, yeah, there's this sort of parlor game. How would you define the difference between political theory? <laughs> when I first got to Brown, a student I was lucky to work with, who's now actually back in philosophy doing a PhD at Iowa, Tim Summers, he said, I know the answer to that. It's very simple. They read Machiavelli. Yeah. <laughs> and he's, it's, it's, it's a joke because they do and we you know roughly speaking mostly don't but it also right. is telling in some way and it's interesting yeah. what is what is that signifying and I, I hope i'm getting at that a little bit here i'll say a little bit more about moralism if that's okay sure um so i think that if somebody wants to say political normativity the kind of wrongs or oughts or shoulds that are about the political are not moral uh then that view to be developed in a convincing way would have to say something about, well, what is the moral? And how, what do you mean by saying this isn't that? And then what is it? And I've never, I've never heard yet a convincing account of that. Now, really, I really mean this provisionally. It may yet come. A lot of people have this view. Bernard Williams has sort of re-stimulated thinking around this um, idea. But what I do in the book is at least this. I say, um, let's look at the, um, the things that it might mean it has sometimes meant, and I'm going to try to say why I think, at least from that menu of options, none of them is a very strong argument. Um, so I'll just give a couple of those. One sure. uh, common one would be people say things that at least suggest that they're thinking that the moralizing side of the moralists, the political philosophers, tend to think of political philosophy as really just involving personal moral principles that we just do moral philosophy for humans and then apply it. Now, I really don't think anybody does that. No, just so described, there might be some other way in which they're moralists, but um, it's just so obviously a category mistake. Mm. Um, principles of justice, I'm focusing on that in this book, they, they can't apply to a person in the following sense. I, I, 
I don't have a legal constitution and justice might require having a constitution. Um, I don't have a legal system. I don't have an economic system. I don't have a basic social structure. Principles about how those things should be just can't apply to individuals. So So there's a category mistake and political philosophers do not generally think that principles of, say, justice or lots of other political principles are somehow principles for individuals. Another thing, of course, just to sort of go away to the other wing, a certain amount of, let's call it anti-moralism in political theory, is really skeptical about the moral itself. Now, that's that's fine. We all know as you're a moral and political philosopher, you know how hard those questions are to beat the skeptic in any of those areas. You might think that morality is really just an expression of emotions, and some realists say that kind of thing, or just rationalizations of our preferences Lots of things you could say to try to debunk the moral. Well, okay, I don't try to defend the moral against skepticism in the book. I just say, look, this, this is a long tradition about whether moral nihilism or moral skepticism is what we have to resort to. And the realists really are not engaging that tradition. So I don't think that's really what they want to hang their critique on. So that's another one where I say, well, they probably don't mean that. And if they do, they really haven't owned up to the, to the debate about it. So there are others, but I go through a few and try to say, look, so now I feel like the burden is on the person who says it's not the moral. It sounds kind of moral in the sense that injustice must not just be a bad thing, it's a wrong. I think that's very intuitively plausible. And if we don't have some other conception of what wrong means, let's just call that part of the moral. It's that kind of wrong, even if it's different from individual wrongs in certain ways. Let me finish this long answer with something we can then come back to. Sure. I do grant that there's a limit. So one way, one thing I'm doing in the book is trying to explore how does theorizing about justice look um, if we just treat it as just frankly moral? Because there are a lot of things we've learned about moral philosophy over the years. You know um, how you know permission and obligation and subjective and obli- uh, objective obli- all these this architecture of debates and stuff could be brought to bear if political philosophy, much of it anyway, is moral. So I explore that. But here's the, here's the, the um, part that is troubling there. Uh, principles of justice, as I was just um, saying, apply to societies as such. And you can't assume that that even implies requirements for the individuals, because a lot of times the individual isn't required to do anything unless the others would. Right. And I'll just leave that kind of abstract for now. We, I think we'll probably come back to it. So here's the question. If we say, who does it apply to? We say the society. But if, if it is a principle of right and wrong, you'd think that has to be some agent who would be guilty or culpable of the wrong. Who is it? Who's the agent? Who's the culprit? Right. Um, so I acknowledge that that's one difficulty about treating political normativity as moral. Um, later in the book, then I try to grapple with that. Say, well, here's the best we can do with assimilating it to the moral, and it's not going to be exactly like personal, agential moral requirements, but still, broadly speaking, um, in the vicinity of uh, the moral. Now, so that's a difficulty about seeing the political as moral. I don't think it really is what the realists have ever been after, but maybe somebody will come along and say, that is in a way what we've been worried about all along, that that would be fine. Right, right. Great, great. And I guess that um, uh, one... um one ready, but I think ultimately philosophically uh, very, very difficult response to the sort of who is the agent is to try to conceive of societies as collective agents in some 
yes. sense, which, you know, is an alluring possibility, but also philosophically, I have to say, not really promising. <laughs> oh, good. I'm glad you feel that way. Uh, um, you probably thought that way before you, you read what I had to say about it. But uh, well, I agree with you. Um, and, and here's how I think uh, uh, we should think of it, which is there's a lot of good work on the possibility of collective moral agents. And just to be clear, this is a collectivity that is the agent. Not right. just that in some sense people are acting together. That's a separate thing. If it's the agent, that means it, um, it's the one that's guilty of the wrong, or it's the one that's required. Um, you know, Philip Pettit and Christian List have a terrific book about what might be sure. required for groups to be agents. Well, the best accounts, and there's a certainly among the best accounts, if you do buy that there can be group agents, and I'm sort of undecided about that, but I'm open to it, that doesn't show you that uh, societies are right. agents. And in some ways, here's the strongest point. The requirements for agency in a view like theirs is a pretty sophisticated interrelation between the individual's attitudes and so on, so that the individual, so that the collective has reasons of its own, pro-attitudes and something like beliefs of its own. It's got to be a pretty sophisticated relation between individuals. They argue that something like democracy uh, might come close. But look, we surely don't think that a uh, collectivity that's organized as a nation or a state that's far from democracy, not organized in any way that's responsive to all the members, somehow thereby escapes principles of justice. Right. So if it's under principles of justice, even that society, then it looks like we have requirements that apply to it, even though it's clearly not an agent by any such account. So, so I put that aside too. Not that there are no collective agents, but there aren't enough of them <laughs> to cover all the societies we think could be just or unjust. Great, great. Um, let's talk a little bit now about your um, engagement with another kind of concessive um, conception. Uh, Maybe we should say what concessive is. Oh, kind of oh yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, please go. <laughs> um, so one other concept, one other con- one other line of thought that claims that whatever the truth about justice is or whatever the correct principles of justice are, those must sort of in some way be concessive to certain kinds of facts, either about what people are likely to do or what they can do or what the world is like or what the resources, uh, the distribution of resources on the globe are like. Um, uh, is that, is that? Yeah, I would think that the connotation of the word concessive, we could just put a slightly finer point on it that yeah. some people, you know, or these concessive principles or requirements would be those that are, um, applicable or required uh, by because of conceding some unfortunate facts. It's good, good, good. In the sense that it's granting something unfortunate and going from there. Yeah. Great, great, great. So, um, one uh, line of that sort that you engage with that helps lead very naturally into uh, some of the positive uh, uh, um, part of the, the the positive part of the book or the positive thesis of the book um, is a a kind of line that. Um, tries to recommends that we bend our conception of what justice requires by uh, or bend it to uh, the sort of crooked timber of humanity as you as you remind us in the book uh, um, so uh, there's some facts uh, of a particular kind uh, about human nature uh, in a sense to be uh, I'll, I'll let you unpack um, and justice, by the very, maybe in some some versions of this up, by the very nature of what kind of concept justice is, justice has to be bent to conform to 
um, the contours of those facts by way of uh, a deployment of an Alton Plies, some version of Alton Plies can that, you know, justice has to be within our reach because whatever justice is, it, imp- it imposes oughts. There can't be oughts that um, aren't fit to our cans. And so, uh, <laughs> sorry, that was a really bizarre way of putting it. Uh, there, there can't be oughts that outstrip what we can do. Uh, and so um, that's a looks like a pretty intuitive and tight uh, argument um, for thinking that justice um, uh, has to be concessive to yeah. these kinds of facts. Um, now, you've got a, a couple of uh, uh, well-known, uh, by this point, articles uh, and a nice chunk of the book sort of, again, devoted to um, rebuffing that thought more than, uh, I would say refuting it. Right. That is that, yeah. uh, once we get the details out about what the cans, what kinds of cans are, uh, ought defeating, uh, then it looks like the argument is far more complicated and not as intuitively, yeah. uh, you know, powerful as it may be. So can you sure. run us through some of that? Yeah. yeah. So philosophers have this, kind of shorthand for talking about these issues that, that you're properly, you know, rightly using here, odd implies can. The, the more intuitive idea that that's a shorthand for is that it, it seems uh, crazy for there to be something that a person's required to do that they can't do. Right. So really the, the principle that, that many people subscribe to, though not everyone, is that there are no requirements to do what you can't do. Okay, so suppose you believe that, and I, I probably do believe it, but at the very least, I grant that for the sake of argument. And you might say that's a kind of at least um, minimal limit on of realism. We're not required to do anything we can't do. And then people will say things or imply things like the following. Well, look, you've got this highly idealistic, maybe egalitarian or maybe free market theory, um, but it would only work if people did all these things, you know, either inform themselves in very special ways and behave conscientiously and all that. But people just aren't like that. So let's start with that. Uh, and then they'll say, but art implies can, can't be required to do what we can't do, so surely that can't be required. Now, as I put it, there's just a breathtaking non sequitur there when you focus <laughs> in on it, which is all they're asking us to grant is that people won't do it. Right. That's a long way from showing that they can't do it. Um, and the principle only says there's no requirement where you can't do it. It surely doesn't say there's no requirement where you won't do it. Uh, nobody, I guess, accepts that. Um, and, and just to kind of make this vivid, I've, I've been doing this for some years. You've probably heard it 10 or 15 times yourself. But I think of the first example to, to illustrate just at an intuitive personal level how many things there are that we can do that we won't do. And <laughs> I'm, you know, you know what's kind of, I'm not... I'm not going to dance like a chicken while I'm giving a talk or doing this interview for that matter. I'm, I'm just not going to do it, but I can do it. I actually know how to dance like a chicken. Uh, not only can I do it, it's actually easy to dance like a chicken. You put your thumbs up under your arms and you stick your chin out and I'm not, not going to do it. Um, it's easy. So the fact that we're not going to do it just goes no way at all to getting toward a can't an inability that would block a so now, how might this matter in political philosophy? Well, people say against some idealistic theory, as I mentioned, maybe egalitarian, maybe free market. Look, people aren't like that, so, and they can't be required to do things they can't do. And I say, you haven't shown me that they can't do it. It might be dead easy for people to inform themselves in the way that this theory requires. Or the egalitarian um, behaviors that 
a certain maybe socialist theory requires of people, might at least be within people's abilities. Maybe that would take some training or whatever, or maybe it's actually dead easy, but you and I both know they're never going to do that. But if, if it's within their abilities, then the odd implies can thing is just not applicable. Now, here's the thing that I thought uh, uh, makes it more interesting. And I do think often in the tradition, it's this intermediate thing I'm going to introduce now that's really at stake. The way they get to the odd implies can idea is not quite as glaringly a non sequitur as the first version. Um, there is this phrase in English, and I'm happy to, as it were, let, let the other side use it. We talk about things we can't bring ourselves to do. Mm-hmm. Not just that we're not going to do it, it's that we might even set out to do it, but we might be such that even if we set out to do it, we're not going to do it. And that the word can't shows up there, right? And it, it's so idiomatic, I'm not going to say it's a mistake. We can't bring ourselves to do it. Um, now, what are what are some of those kinds of things? Well, Here's an example. Again, it's one I use in the book. You can imagine a guy, let's call him Bill, and he's uh, required maybe by law, maybe by uh, decorum or, you know, politeness in the neighborhood to take his garbage out regularly and all the way to the curb where it'll get picked up. But he can't bring himself to do it. As, when I use that idiomatic phrase, I think we recognize this kind of thing. This guy just doesn't care enough about these rules or requirements or is just lazy or in some other way, sets out and then decides at some point, I'm just not going to keep trying anymore and leave the garbage in the yard. I'm happy to call that can't bring himself to do. But look, that doesn't show Bill can't take his garbage to the corner. Right. And it doesn't, it's, it, it, it's pretty clear it doesn't defeat the ought. That's <laughs> It doesn't defeat the ought, meaning we don't let Bill off the hook from the requirement. Right. We don't say you're not doing anything wrong because I see now, we see you can't do it. It's like, no, right. you're lazy. You can't bring yourself to, and that's why you're, Violating this requirement and will continue. Yeah, it seems to make him even more culpable, right? <laughs> so, in two ways, not only did he not do this thing, he's also this kind of jerk. Yeah, uh, right. down, maybe. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. So, you can see how that um, applies to political philosophy. Whole, whole schemes of what a just society might look like could be held to be, as people put it, incompatible with human nature, by which they might mean people just won't do that, or they might somewhat more importantly mean people are such motivational humans that. They're not going to be able to bring themselves to do it, so they can't be required. And I say that's still a non sequitur for reasons I've just explained. Right. You do, though, recognize, um, uh, and you know, there's a uh, there's a lot. Let's just say to the, to the listeners, you know, there's a lot in this book that is um, very original and inventive and precise that we're not able to get to. Um, you. But you do uh, recognize that there are. There is some sense that is not merely logical impossibility of cannot. <laughs> you know, there are certain kinds of motivational foibles or whatever yeah. that might actually be odd defeating, right? Right, right. The, the, the most simple kinds of can can't do inabilities. I don't use the word impossibility. That actually raises other issues. But the the odd implies can is about ability, what we're able to do. And some are like I can't, um, I can't um, leave the room because the door is locked. But as you point out, there may be, and I just grant it for the sake of argument because I just don't want to go into it. I don't need to commit myself to these. But there may be and probably are kinds of motivational forces that are are the right nature that we should say the person is unable to do the thing. Right. Um, one easy kind of case, which I have no trouble committing myself to, is you might be so afraid of heights that when you climb above a certain rung on a ladder, and almost everybody has that rung. <laughs> <laughs> 
There's the wrong where it's really hard and you really don't want to go any further. Now, that's not a can't. Nothing is stopping you. And if you tried to put your foot up there, you can move your foot. And then you take that step. But now there's the other wrong where you're trembling or you're weak or you're hyperventilating and you literally couldn't take the step if you tried. Your leg is weak. So that's an easy can't. And motivational things, broadly conceived, can have those, let's say, bodily effects. Absolutely. Then the more interesting case that there's lots of philosophical, fascinating philosophical debate about whether they do count as inabilities are things associated with phobias and addictions. Right. Um, and I say, I'm not going to try to say exactly where this line is, but let's grant for the sake of argument that some things in those categories, I just call them clinical to lump them all together and say, sure, I'm, I'm sure there are some or may very well be that I'm willing to count as inabilities. The thing is, I don't need to decide where that line is because those aren't the things that are used in debates about political philosophy, right? They're not, they're not usually talking about motivational features that are such that they amount to addictions or phobias or that kind of pathology. They're talking about self-love and uh, partiality and so on. That's right. That's right. Great, great. So let's build on that then. Um, so now sort of segueing into some of the more positive uh, prescriptive or uh, the, the, the not merely rebuffing okay. uh, elements. So um, the thesis uh, is that justice could very well, right? There's no reason to, uh, uh, to reject uh, out of hand the thought that justice could require um, more than we could or ever will do. Um, Can I jump in there? Because yeah, yeah. you put it that way, and I know you were noticing this. I don't want to say it re- re- that it might require more than we could do. <laughs> right, right, right. Not for the sake of argument, we're not required to do it if we can't do it. I, I've, I've gotten almost allergic. I noticed those little differences. Because <laughs> that's what the whole ballgame is. Right, I right, grant right. that if we can't do it, we're not required. But I don't grant that if we can't bring ourselves to do it, we're not required. And I think that's probably what you were referring to. Yeah, yeah. So, it, it, you know, one of the nice things about the book is that, you know, um, uh, it's it, you make it very easy to see how certain substantive philosophical conclusions are in a way that it's really not not always easy to see, kind of embedded in natural ways of talking about things. Right, so, I make the sense myself now, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, – Justice could very well require more than we can bring ourselves to do or will do. Um, And um, just to use this very broad word that you use very handily, I should say, sort of um, uh, there are several intriguing arguments in the book about um, how certain requirements, that's the the, the handy word, work. Um, And particularly, you know, you're you're very keen, uh, and and I should say, you know, the arguments are really compelling here that um, uh, if we could just sort of foreshadow some of the the, the bigger game that's out there, the, you know, the idealistic requirements of justice have a certain structure that look like they're requirements to do two things, uh, to build and then comply uh, with some institutions. Uh, and you're interested in showing that it's the nature of that kind of requirement that um, uh, the fact that we won't comply um, uh, doesn't leave standing the requirement to build, (laughs) 
but neither does it defeat the normativity of the requirement to build. Um, So one way, uh, there are a couple of examples. Listeners who've been following your work, I'm sure, have heard you talk about these characters before. Uh, So there's Slice and Patch on one side, and then uh, this example uh, that comes ultimately, uh, I think, is it in the Jackson and and, um, uh, is it in the Jackson paper, the the Professor Procrastinate case? Yeah, that character. But they were were making, they were dealing with some things that were pioneered by people like um, Holly uh, Smith Goldman and some others, but they invented that great character, Professor Procrastinate. So let's say who that is. Yeah, let's talk about that for a bit. Yeah. Okay. So let's get to Professor Procrastinate in a minute. I want to just go back over what you introduced and unpack it a little bit. Sure. So um, here's a very common way of getting to someone to convince themselves there's some kind of non-ideal theorist. They say, well, here's what your idealistic theory of justice says. Let me just pause here to say, it might not be clear to readers yet that I make a point of saying I'm not um, plumping for any particular theory of justice. It's not Good. left, it's not right. It's not, I'm, I'm saying this is a general point about what theories of justice, whether they're constrained by this kind of realism. Okay, so somebody might say the following very sensible thing. Your view seems to say that we should have and comply with these institutions. Maybe they're, as I say, socialist, or maybe they're um, libertarian, capitalist, whatever. Um, but you and I both know people aren't going to comply with those institutions, so surely we shouldn't build them. And if they take a breath, I say, so far, so good. <laughs> but they conclude, therefore, your theory of justice has to be wrong because you seem to require that we build them. And now I say that's actually a mistake. So a theory that says, either the socialist, say, or the capitalist, whatever, justice requires building and complying, building or sustaining and complying use building with certain institutions, we can't quite say it requires you to build them. (laughs) And there's some deontic logic things that we probably won't try to get into today, but I do take seriously. But let's simplify a little bit. Um, You can't assume that if we're required to build and comply, that that implies that we're required to build precisely for the reason that whether we build, whether we should build, depends on whether we're going to comply. At least that's generally the case with institutions, right? They don't have their value or even exist, I guess, without sufficient levels of compliance. So the idea is this. Look, maybe you and I both know people wouldn't comply with these institutions. I claim we should build and comply with them. You say I'm committed to saying we should build them, which is absurd. And I say, no, we're not required to build them. Don't build them. We're not going to comply with them. But we're still required to build and comply with them. Right. Now, you can. it, it sounds like it might be a trick or whatever, and there's a great intricate literature, people are still divided a bit about it. I try to show in a certain chapter that it turns out the terms of those debates don't matter for me, but I take it very seriously and I say, I can actually make all my points either way. But just to make that point clearer, uh, Frank Jackson and Robert Pargetter introduced this very realistic character, so to speak. <laughs> so here's the story of Professor Procrastinate. Now, for the moment, this is not about social justice, but it's about this structure uh, of these requirements. Uh, so the story is he's required to accept and write a book review because maybe he's on the board or he promised or whatever it is. And we're not going to take back that he's required to accept it and write it. But he's the kind of person who, even if he accepts the assignment, is never going to get around to writing it. Okay? He can. So this is not a can't thing. He could, but he's like Bill the garbage guy. He's lazy or whatever. It is. He's a procrastinator. Mm-hmm. But here's the question. Is he required you know, in, the, in their literature, they say ought, but I'm just going to, and they might not always have 
in mind what I mean by required, but the same point holds, stick with required. Does it follow that he's required to accept because he's required to accept and write? But that strikes us as intuitively implausible. Surely he shouldn't accept if he's not going to write. So that helps us see how at least you could hold that you could be required, and now let's abstract it a bit, an agent or a society could be required to do A and B, but not required to do A, because they're not going to do B, and the value of A is only along with B. So institutions might be like that. Having egalitarian theory says we should build these egalitarian institutions and comply with them. Somebody says, but surely you don't think we should build those institutions. And I say, yep, we should not build them, because we're actually unjustly, we wouldn't comply with them anyway. So don't build them, but we're unjust because we should build and comply with them. So it looks like a logical puzzle, but then I try to unpack it. And the professor procrastinating example is very helpful. Good. Now, um, the patch thing, let me just introduce you. You, yeah. well, you go ahead, ask what you wanted to. We can no, I was just going to say, can you tell us about slice and patch, which yeah. introduces a different, well, well I don't want to say different. I want to say additional yeah. um, puzzling feature to this, to this kind of thought. Right. So slice and patch is my own example. It, it, it's related to some things that have been done before, but I do try to point out how it's really not quite the same. Um, it's, you'll see it's got something in common with the Professor Procrastinate case, but we're using it for a different purpose. But the commonality between these two is, is useful. And you can kind of, once you get these points, you see them right through the argument of the book. So slice and patch are two doctors. Dr. Slice is the surgeon, not surprisingly. And Dr. Patch is the master stitcher. Um, and now, on a very unfortunate day for a certain patient, he needs surgery at noon, and he needs it from doctors Slice and Patch. Now, philosophers will be familiar with how we just let's assume you can fill in the details so that this is the case. It has to be them. Now, I'm going to add some more assumptions to get up the puzzling case. As it happens, suppose Doctor Slice is not going to be there to do the surgery, even if Doctor Patch is going to be there to stitch. Now, here's another unfortunate thing. Dr. Patch isn't going to be there, even if it were the case that Dr. Slice, that, that, yeah, that Dr. Slice would be there. Okay, so neither of them is going to be there. The patient needs the stitching. They're both off golfing, let's say, and they're going to golf even if the other one wasn't golfing, each of them. Uh, I think we feel, many of us, that the patient is wronged, let's say, at noon when they negligently are off golfing and he needed their surgery. But what did Dr. Slice do wrong? Right. Surely you don't want him making the incision because nobody's there to stitch it, assume. And surely you don't want Patch doing some stitching when there's no incision. So neither of them did anything that violated what you might have thought there was, that was their requirements to slice and to patch respectively. They did just the right thing. Don't slice if there's no patcher. Don't patch if there's no slicer. And now we can't find anybody who negligently wronged the patient leading to their death. Now, you can try these things about whether slice and patch are a group agent. And we fortunately talked about that a little bit. Yeah. If you think they might be a group agent, I have other examples where it's very implausible that they're an agent. And you can get the exact same structure. But we've touched on that. I think listeners can probably sure. construct those. So now the slice and patch thing has this in common with Professor Procrastinate, but it's just kind of a a side point. Um, uh, when we have two things that are required together, each one might only be required along with the other. And it turns out we have the one person case in Professor Procrastinate and the two person case, or it could be any number of persons, right? So we might think intuitively, 
it's required that slice and patch do the surgery and stitch. Um, but it doesn't mean it's required that slice do it. We've seen why. It's actually probably required that he not, but it's at least not required that he does it because there's nobody stitch and same for patch. So now we have a puzzle. Who's under this, I think, intuitive requirement that they ought to slice and patch? Turns out moral philosophy doesn't have much to say about this. It doesn't have a um, doesn't have a well worked out, to say the least, account of what kind of requirement that is that isn't a requirement on an agent. It's a requirement over agents, but notice there's no agent that does anything wrong when the patient right. left to die. So, so the use of that same kind of structural point gets used to go back to this point that we raised at the beginning about how could requirements of justice apply to a set of agents, even though there's no agent that actually requires to do anything. Right. And so I take it then just to, to, let me just ask you to make more explicit the, the connection to theorizing justice in a highly idealized way. Let's just, yeah. so is it the thought that, look, we, we've got this intuitive case, which as puzzling as it may be, nonetheless clearly looks like a case in which there is a certain kind of requirement of a complex kind that is a requirement to do among other things, you know, create certain institutions or build them, comply with them. Maybe some other things are added. Those do not, I don't know what the right sort of, without getting into some of the, the language of the deontic stuff. I mean, they don't decouple in very obvious ways, right? So it's not that we, we should go build them, even though we know that there's, there's going to be a failure to comply. And so it looks as if we've got in, in, in the slice and patch case from the procrastinate case, we've got this example where you say, well, wait a minute now, there, there is something that looks obviously like a requirement that does not decouple in those kinds of ways and nonetheless looks like it's it's a it's it's a it's a bona fide sort of moral thing right there's the there's the requirement to 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 slice the guy up and the the other guy's got a patch just doesn't mean that anybody needs to do anything yeah (laughs) right right Right. so let me just say now so where does this how does this argument come up for what i'm doing right good good Basically, what I'm doing is posing a problem for myself. If you don't think it's a problem, yay, that's even better for me. How is it a problem for me, this problem we're talking about? I call it the puzzle of plural plural obligation. Um, Here's how I think it's a puzzle for me. Um, I don't think it arises, and this is important, it doesn't arise only because I'm defending the possibility of super-idealistic theories of justice. It has nothing to do with that. What it has to do with is I'm defending the idea of the kinds of requirements in theories of justice as being moral. So if we try to think of those as moral, then we just don't know how to explain this kind of supposed moral requirement on no agent. Okay. So, so it's not about the idealism and that's important to me because people might say, Oh, I can just avoid your whole slice and patch problem because I don't believe in ideal theories of justice and that wouldn't work. Do you believe that requirements of justice are in some sense moral? And we've talked about that. If you don't, Let's hear what you mean by the moral and how you've got something else and I haven't found anything satisfactory. So I'm trying to see how it could be moral and here's the really hard case for theories of justice. So that's a problem for myself. So then what I try to do in the pair of chapters, set up the puzzle, say a lot of natural things you might try to avoid it or solve it don't work. And then I try to come up with what I might call a kind of solution. 
But just to be clear, I'm not going to be, be able to present it all here, but I'm not going to pull a rabbit out of a hat and say we found the agent who's required. I try to show how the kind of thing, the kind of cluster of things that are going on here involve certain kinds of conditional requirements and some other things. And I make a case, again, I won't try to make it here, that this is close enough to other things we call moral that we should be satisfied to say this is a moral thing and we can call it a moral requirement, granting explicitly it's not a classic agential moral requirement. So again, I'm, I'm, I'm telegraphing a bit of that, but that just puts it in its kind of polemical yeah. place. Right, right. Great, great. So, um, so I've got, uh, I've got three more questions, but we're, we're, we're running short on time. Okay. Does it, can I, but, but, go you know, or? yeah, we can, we can keep going. Uh, but so let me, let me just sort of, you know, we sometimes do this at philosophy colloquia and, you know, sometimes it yeah. works really well. Other times it doesn't, but yeah. with you, I suspect it'll work well. Yeah. So what I want to do is I want to just sort of the, the remaining three questions are, are, are linked in certain ways, but also, um, uh, you know, are asking you to, to do some situating work. Um, so th- let me just sort of spell out what I have in mind for, th- for three independent questions and then we can, I can let you respond and then we could, um, uh, uh, see what kind of ground we want to, we want to cover, uh, yeah. as we pr- proceed. Um, yeah, as we say in colloquial. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good, 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 good. So I, I, I wanted to ask firstly about, um, the discussion that's relatively early in the book um, about the relation of um, your view, uh, this sort of uh, kind of defense of at least the the the, the possibility uh, that ideal theorizing is uh, not a, a a superfluous waste of time uh, or or worse. So I wanted to ask you a little bit about um, why you think that your 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 defense, uh, as such as it is, of this sort of ideal theorizing is consistent with. Um, or at least not obviously inconsistent with um, the critique that is fairly well known from Charles Mills. Um, then I also had in mind to ask you about um, some of your maneuvers against another um, defense of non-ideal theorizing uh, or let's say a critique of ideal theorizing that we get from Amartya Sen in another influential paper, What Do We Want from a Theory of Justice, which is a pure comparativist view that there is no just or unjust. There's really, except in a derivative sense, the, the real the real operator is juster. Um, and um, uh, thirdly, I wanted to sort of bring us back around to the top, to the, to the very top of the discussion with um, some discussion of your thoughts about why um, pursuing uh, uh, thinking about justice in these highly idealized ways might be valuable um, in some practical ways and in some other ways as well. Um, so uh, is there a way that you can see to sort of work through that agenda? Sure. Yeah, uh, good. Actually, those are three that I think I can give a, a fairly brief version of an answer. It's not that they're all answered by one thing, but... Good, 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 good. Yeah, yeah. So let me, let's start with, so Charles Mills' famous, very influential article, uh, ideal theory as ideology. Um, as I say, it sort of kicked off, or it was even sort of what I call a ticking time bomb. It was an early thing, <laughs> what people came to see as the ideal theory, non-ideal theory debate. And it was thought to be the kind of a shot across the bow on behalf of non-ideal theory against, let's say, against ideal theory. Right. Now, are people familiar with these d- debates, even peripherally, but also intimately, might naturally think that Mills's view in that article must be the polar opposite of what I'm defending in this book. That's a very natural way to people think who are the, you know, people working at these various polls. 
So, so is, is that the case? Now, I, I decided that I wanted to say more about Mills than I had done so far just as I was finishing. And so I required the reading in a class and read it more closely than I had done in some time. And I came to an interpretation of it, which had always been in the back of my mind. Let me say what it is. As I read Mills, it's, it's a highly passionate argument. And so it can give the reader the impression that he's really down on ideal theory. But if you look carefully at the arguments, he's arguing not that ideal theory or um, um, defending ideals of justice is a bad or wrong or illegitimate thing. That would be against ideal theory. Mm-hmm. What he's arguing is against what I'll call the hegemony, the, the, the sort of nothing but ideal theory. Right. We could debate about whether it's as hegemonic as he was thinking at that time. I happen to think it actually hasn't been as hegemonic, but never mind. Here's a point. If philosophers, maybe partly following Rawls, are doing almost nothing or lots of ideal theory, is there something wrong with that? Now, if even if there is, that wouldn't show that there's anything wrong with ideal theory. There just shouldn't be as much of it, right? And I think that's his view. Let me say how it goes. Because I'm going to lay out the view and I'll say just tentatively, I agree with him on the following. If philosophers were to just largely think in terms of uh, ideal justice or principles of ideal, full, a fully just society, they won't be talking much about the real world of injustice that we know is out there. Um, structural kinds of injustices and racism and discrimination and um, the whole panoply of these things. But these things are, these things are complicated, intricate phenomena. And if you don't understand even how they work, here's his point as I understand it, then you claim to be a political philosopher talking about justice and you won't even have the right concepts. Good. You're going to just be using pieces on the board that just don't really engage with social reality. I think that's correct. Now, that doesn't mean that if you work in political philosophy, half your book has to be engaging with real empirical things, but, but I think he's right about that. So I don't, and, and I think that's his criticism. And so there's nothing, if I'm reading him right, to disagree between him and me. So that's a short answer. Let me say, I think this is just because this will be helpful to readers. As I say, I wrote this late in the work on the book, and that can always be dangerous to just let it go into print before you tried it out on audiences. So I thought I would try it out on an audience of one, namely Charles Mills. So I emailed <laughs> him with this little section and said, just, I really would love to know what you think. And he wrote back with, you know, voluminous comments very generously and basically went through my various claims and said, yep, yep, yep. And then he finished by saying, I'm really pleased to see that we haven't really disagreed fundamentally after all. And I, of course, said, can I quote you? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Partly as an appeal to authority, he's terrific. Um, But partly it will be really clarifying to readers to try to figure out how to understand my views if they see that Charles Mills and I agree that we don't fundamentally disagree. Okay, that was longer than I intended. (laughs) Time for Sen and uh, the third thing. Uh, So, yeah, Sen and then the the, the notes on which you you conclude. Yeah. Okay, great. I marked just Sen. Uh, um, a great a great treasure to philosophers who's also a Nobel Prize winning economist in some of his relatively more recent work argues that um, maybe there's some interest or intrinsic value in a theory of the fully just society. Maybe he's not denying it, but why do we need that for practical purposes? All we would really need is a theory, and this comes from his social choice background, all we really need is comparisons between possibilities and which is juster than which. 
Uh, that is correct, I think, for practical purposes. If you had, you know, all the the rankings of that kind, merely ordinal, to use a technical term, which is juster than which, you wouldn't need this, what he calls partition, of at what point it tips over to counting as fully just. That's right. So that might seem to suggest that there's no practical value in having a theory of full justice. Well, here's why I don't think um, that conclusion follows. He gives us very plausible examples of how we can compare certain states of society with respect to which is juster than which without using any theory of full justice. That's illuminating. But he only gives us examples that are just obvious. They're just intuitively obvious. Yeah, like the mountains and... Yeah, he uses yeah. analogies with artwork yeah. and mountains, but I'll just for the sake of time, I'll go straight yeah. to societies. And he'll say, yeah. you know, society without slavery is juster than society with, just, uh, with slavery. And we don't need a theory of what a fully just society is to know that. And other examples like that. Now, since he only gives us examples, what I call eyeball examples, you see right. them and you can just, these are just things we grow up knowing are comparative. He doesn't give us a theory of these comparisons. Now, to be clear, he's not claiming to, but what he is claiming, I think properly understood, is that we could have a theory of just the comparisons and then we'd have all we need for practical purposes. I grant we would have all we need for practical purposes. I don't see how we'd get a theory and here's why. A big chunk of our intuitive judgments of the kind we would want to use to construct a theory, and after all, in moral theory, like a lot of philosophy, all we have is judgments and trying to make make them consistent and see which ones we have to give up if we need to hold on to other ones. Lots of our intuitive, intuitive judgments about uh, comparative justice are implying things about a threshold of justice. Right. So if we just didn't have any account of where the, thresh, the threshold or partition fits in, here are some judgments that we wouldn't have available. Uh, nearly just, much more unjust, right. and so on. Just think of all the kind of cognates of those. Those imply a partition. So if you don't have a theory that tells us where the partition goes, then you don't have a theory of those judgments. Then you can't use them in trying to get your theory of just the rankings. And I, this is tentative, but I just say, I really doubt with such um, spare resources that it's clear that we could do it. And the fact that we have a few eyeball judgments just isn't enough to show us. Okay. So that's a short um, 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 response to Sen's argument. Can I ask a quick question though? Oh, yeah. if, you, if you don't mind, I mean, I, um, do you think also that um, one of the um, the limitations of this purely comparative approach um, sort of comes to the fore when, in order to um, even to make the right sort of political proposals, we might need um, more of a theory about the wrongness making properties of some of these unjust. Um, these eyeball unjust, right? So, well, you know, in order to figure out what to do, sometimes we we need more than just saying, you know, yeah. this isn't more unjust than that. We need to understand something about the the wrongness making property of the thing that we're looking at, and that looks like it calls us to some kind of normative theorizing that itself maybe it doesn't require us to be ideal theorists about things, but at least it looks like it requires some non-comparative normative theorizing, right? It, it may very well. And that argument has been made by the one I know best is Adam Swift. He might be right. one of the first people to make that point. A few people have elaborated that. Zosia Stemplowska has done some related things and the two of them together. Um, right. So the thought is, um, 
how are we going to do these rankings if we don't understand the values that go in either justice or other values that are sort of um, constitutive of justice if we can't also think about what a fully just society is? Right. And and there's probably a lot to that, but it's not conclusive, right? It's like that's just the thought is very plausible. That's likely to be a resource for helping us understand those values so that we can use them when it comes to doing the rankings we need. So again, like mine, it's not meant to be conclusive, but it's very plausibly one of the ways that we get our understanding of how to rank. Good. Good. And, and that's a separate argument from mine. You're quite right about right, that. Right, right. So, okay, great. So now you've been very generous for your time. We're going a little bit over, which is fine with me, um, but you know, you're <laughs> okay, good. Um, so let's, um, do you then... want to your third thing? Is that what you want? Uh, you What's want to that? talk a bit about the, that closing bit about how, um, yeah, justice might be, have some practical value. Yeah, I want to go back to the sort of the, the very beginning, right, where we were talking about this sort of two-eyed approach and all the rest. Um, so the, the the end of the book is this sort of series of um, uh, uh, reflections on why um, ideal theorizing might have value uh, independent of any sort of action-guiding, practical, uh, you know, task-mastering. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about some of those thoughts? Sure. Um, I also do, and I think we hinted at at least one of them very early on, say there are some ways in which it might even have practical value. Yeah. Uh, And then at the end I say, but even apart from that, here's another way I think it can be an important philosophical issue. Um, A a lot of accounts of what it is to be a morally good person says something along the following lines, that it includes having the right kind of sensitivity or responsiveness to the real appropriate values. So if you're not responsive to cruelty in certain characteristic ways, that's a kind of moral deficiency in you. It could come in degrees. Um, If you're not responsive to um, generosity in certain ways, if you don't feel gladdened when you hear of it or see it, that's a a moral deficiency in your, let's call it character, um, or your motivational structure. Well, similarly, then, I think it's plausible that if you don't respond appropriately to injustice, either seeing it or hearing of it or contemplating it, and you don't respond in the right way, which presumably would be in some way to find it lamentable or unfortunate or saddening or angering, we could discuss which exactly of those attitudes would be the right cluster. But if you're not responding appropriately to injustice, then that's a moral deficiency. And again, it might be in a mild degree or significant. That's an how insensitive you are. Well, if that's right, then if you don't understand what justice is, you don't understand what injustice is, and then your range of appropriate responses just couldn't possibly just be a coincidence if they were correct. It's not a practical value. This is not to get you to do the right thing, although we could you know, extend it in that way. But it's about if you want to be a morally good person, you want to understand what justice is so that you respond appropriately to examples of justice and injustice. And I think a fundamental question, and it's emerged even more clearly over time, about what justice is, is about what justice is like. Is it the kind of thing that could require even highly unrealistic things? If you're wrong about that, if you take a side on that and you're wrong about it, then you're misunderstanding justice itself in a fundamental way, and then you're just not going to be responding appropriately because you're not going to recognize justice and injustice everywhere that it is. So again, that's not practical, but it's another kind of uh, value it might have. And I'll just cap this off by reminding you, uh, you know this, but the stuff about the value 
either practical or otherwise, of understanding justice if it's very ideal and um, not very practical in certain senses. That's not my main task. So suppose somebody rejected all those arguments, not practically valuable. I don't buy that thing you just said. <laughs> my main thing is to say, okay, but you still haven't co um, confronted my arguments that justice really could be like this. That's my main primary task. Right, right. Can, let me just ask, so just to emphasize one thing, because I suspect that, um, again, in the uh, what we might think of as sort of not merely the philosophical vernacular, but the the common ways in which people think about the oh, people will never never do it, so that can't be what they're required to do. Thought yeah. um, seems to presume something that you're very keen uh, 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 to uh, to distance yourself from, because it looks like it's a just an invalid kind of inference. Can you say something a little bit about the fallacy of approximation? Because it's it's clear that the thought is is uh, uh, the the thought that you're 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 trying to um, uh, defend or support is is willing to accept the the idea that yeah the, the the value of the highly idealized thoughts about justice or the principles of justice that you know you, you're you're defending the the project of uh, of pursuing it's like it's not that that's going to give us the the something to approximate. Right. It's if it's going to have value, it's got to have value of some other kind. Can you just sure. maybe just round us off by talking about how you're fully on board with the, the 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 concern that ideal theory leads people to make this sort of um, this mistake about second best? Good. Yeah, I'm glad you yeah. asked. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's traditionally known as the problem of second best, and I try to elaborate and clarify it in certain ways. Um, and. Uh, you're right that there's a, a way of, and here again, let me say, I'm, make, I'm raising a problem for myself in a certain sense. Right. Somebody, and people have often said this to me when they ask what you're working on, and I talk about very ideal, unrealistic theories of justice. And they say, well, of course, because even though you might not get there, you at least should be trying to get closer, you know, approximate it. And if there's time, I say, well, actually, that's not guaranteed. And so I can't count on that. The reason is this. Um, in a society or in lots of other contexts, if what would be good or required, it works in both cases, is some set of, let's call them ingredients, that'll be helpful here. And that would be really good or good to whatever degree or ideal. If some of them will be missing, you might think, well, you should at least have as many of the others as possible. Mm -hmm. But the term ingredients helps us realize that that's yeah, not yeah. true. Like here's something that's really delicious, steak with steak sauce. And you might say, well, look, I, I don't have any steak, but I do have the steak sauce. I should at least have the steak sauce. It's terrible. Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> the same lesson applies all over the place, um, and it's really relevant here. We just can't assume that if, for example, a just society has to have ingredients A, B, and C, and we know we're never going to get all of them. For example, we're never going to get C, but we should at least have A and B. That could be steak sauce. <laughs> and, and to be less metaphorical... If you have, for example, the institutions without the compliance, it could be utter disaster, right? We're supposed to have the institutions and the compliance, according to some theory. And you say, well, we're not going to get the compliance, but we should have everything we can. Let's at least have the institutions. No. So you see how it relates to that um, professor procrastinate and slice and patch thing. In a way, they're, they're roughly, you know, subsets or species of the very general thing I call the, the um, um, fallacy of approximation. The fallacy would be to say we should have at least as many ingredients as we can. Now, again, that's posing a problem for me if somebody thought that was going to be the value of ideal theory. And I say, sometimes you can reason that way, and sometimes you can't. It's case by case. We can't assume we can. So if it has value, it'll have to be 
of some other kind. Or if it's guaranteed to have value, it has to be of some other kind, yeah. Perfect. That is a, a, a nice way to, to, to wrap up. Um, you know, you've been very generous with your time. It's been really, really a lot of fun uh, to talk so, about been, this. My pleasure. I really am grateful uh, yeah. for inviting me. Yeah. Um, so um, the book, uh, th- well, let me thank the listeners. Thank you, uh, listener, for t- you know, tuning in for my discussion with David Estland of his you know, really fabulous and very original and really, really uh, compelling new book, which is titled Utopophobia on the Limits, If Any, of Political Philosophy. It's just been published by Princeton University Press, and uh, I really uh, recommend it for anybody interested in any of these issues. Um, Thank you for listening to New Books in Philosophy. Bye for now.